Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. All right, we're coming to you tonight from the School of Law at the University of South Carolina in Columbia for the final Democratic town hall before voters go to the polls this weekend. Now, you've already met Senator Bernie Sanders. Right now, let us welcome former Secretary of State, former U.S. Senator from the state of New York, former First Lady, former 2008 presidential candidate, Hillary Clinton. I'm sorry, it took me a second. There were a lot of titles to get through there. I know, I'm sorry about that. Um, So, here we are. You fought off a late surge from Bernie Sanders in Nevada. Your supporters say they're feeling momentum. You picked up a big endorsement. There's a gentleman in the front row, Congressman Clyburn, who wound up coming out for you. Where is your head on it? Do you believe that you have turned a corner? Look, I I believe every election or caucus has to be taken seriously. You have to work hard for every vote. That's what I'm going to be doing here in South Carolina. Uh, I'm taking no vote, no place for granted. So that's not how I think about it. I think that, you know, we have had uh, three contests. We have about 47 to go. And I'm going to work hard in each and every one of them. Now, I notice you did not bring me any package of paper tonight of speech transcripts. (laughs) Earlier tonight, I asked Senator Sanders, will you give your transcripts of speeches? That's what you said. When the others give, then I'll give. He said he doesn't have the bank speeches. If he can find any of the speeches that he did give for money, he will gladly give the transcripts up. So will you agree to release these transcripts? They have become an issue. Sure, if everybody does it, and that includes the Republicans, because we know they have uh, made a lot of speeches. But look, what is this about? This is about whether I have the best plan to go after Wall Street, whether I have a record that already demonstrates my willingness to take on Wall Street and financial uh, interests. And there's no question about that. I did it before the 08 crash. I have done it since in this campaign. I have been absolutely clear. And a lot of people have said I have the most comprehensive, effective, comprehensive plan to make sure that Wall Street never wrecks Main Street again. I've also said I will use the tools that President Obama achieved in the Dodd-Frank regulations, best, tightest regulations we've had in a long time. And they provide the opportunity to break up the banks if they pose systemic risks. And I've said that I would do that uh, if that uh, becomes the case. All the more reason move this as an issue. You know everybody's not going to bring up uh, their transcripts. There'll well, be a hundred reasons why. Why is there one standard for me and not for everybody else, Chris? I mean, you know, at, at some point, at some point, you know, look, I'm on record. I have a record. It certainly is far different from the Republicans because they think actually and have said that the cause of the Great Recession was too much regulation on Wall Street, which is an absolute joke. I have been 
upfront and strong on this issue for a long time, as strong, I would argue, as my esteemed opponent. So you know what? If people are going to ask for things, everybody should be on a level playing field, and I'm happy uh, if that were the case. You do understand, though, the temptation of the unknown. I don't have to explain this to you. You understand that when people but there is, ask there for is, something. But with all due respect, there is no unknown. I am on record. I went to Wall Street before the Great Recession. I called them out. I said what they were doing in the mortgage market was going to cause serious problems. I called for reining in CEO pay. I called for ending the loophole that lets hedge fund managers get a lower tax rate. I have been on record for a really long time. I've now put forth a plan. It's in the public arena. I want people to hold me accountable because that's what I'll do. The other part of this, which I find you know, somewhat uh, concerning actually, is the argument seems to be that if you ever took money from any business of any kind, then you can't fulfill your public responsibilities. Well, that's just not the case. I mean, President Obama took an enormous amount of money, more than anybody ever had, from Wall Street in 2008 when he was successful in his election. And then he turned around and pushed through the toughest regulations that we've seen since the Great Depression. So the argument just doesn't hold up. But again, you know, if everybody's going to do the same thing, then I'll be part of it. We will continue to wait then and see what happens on yeah. that issue. But there are others that must be covered, of course. Uh, President Obama just released his plan to close Guantanamo Bay. You've said you believe in the plan. One part of it, though, will be the transfer of the people who are there now. There is a military holding facility in Charleston, South Carolina, which may receive some of the people from Guantanamo. Tell the people of South Carolina, I ask the same thing to Senator Sanders. Why is it okay to have some of the worst people in the world in their backyard? Well, first of all, the president hasn't made any decision about where the transfers would go. And I think what he wants to do, and I hope he can uh, achieve this, is to work with the Congress. But I've been on record uh, in favor of closing Guantanamo uh, for a long time, since 2008. When I was Secretary of State, working closely with the president, I had a special envoy to find places that could take back some of the prisoners, just as President Bush had done before President Obama. I believe the president is right to try to close it. I think it is a continuing recruitment uh, advertisement for terrorists. Uh, I know that he wants to work with the Congress, and I hope the Congress will work with him, Chris, because there is no reason for us to continue to have Guantanamo, which is a very serious, uh, I guess, symbol, I would say, for a lot of the people around the world who would do us harm and try to recruit others to do us harm. So where they end up should be a matter of negotiation. I know that's what the president wants to do. I will say this, we've got a few places in the country, uh, not here, but you know, the maximum security place uh, that uh, I think is in Colorado, there's one in Illinois, that holds some really terrible people who have committed horrific crimes, including the mastermind of the first attack on the World Trade Center uh, in 1993. The president is trying to figure out what to do with people who are too dangerous to be released, who have to be uh, maintained uh, in a very tough uh, maximum security environment. And all I can hope is that the Congress will work with them. I remember back in the 08 election, President Obama, Senator McCain and I all had the same position. So I hope some of the Republicans will understand that we're in a fight against terrorism. We have to defeat it. 
we don't need to have Guantanamo hanging out there over our heads. Memory is short for compromise and comedy these yeah. days. Comedy with an I-T-Y, not the right. joke that sometimes we behold. So how about we talk to some voters Great. and start with some foreign policy. Sure, All absolutely. Right? I want you to meet Denzon Winley. He's a student here at the University of South Carolina, ran for student body president. He is an independent voter, says he is undecided, has a question for you, Secretary. Great. Great. Good evening, Mrs. Clinton. Good evening. Um, first of all, I hope your campaign goes better than mine did. Uh, <laughs> but, um, well, do not give up. Don't oh, no, keep going. If it's something you want to do, don't get deterred. Thank you. Madam Secretary, you are for a regime change in Syria. But as we have learned in Iraq and recently Libya, getting rid of longtime dictators and their affiliates can lead to problems unforeseen. So if, if Assad was to be deposed, how would you direct the State Department and international partners to install within that country a government capable of containing and mitigating the sectarian and insurgency violence that will undoubtedly increase, thus further destabilizing the region? Well, that's a, an excellent question. And let me say, first of all, uh, talking about Syria and Libya, uh, in Syria, it looks like, and I hope it's the case, we will have a ceasefire by the weekend. I know that Secretary Kerry's been working very hard on that and I hope that takes hold. Because we need to turn the attention of everyone in Syria to defeating the terrorists and we've got to stop the ongoing bombing that Russia has carried out in support of the Assad regime against the Syrians themselves who are trying to you know, wage a civil war against Assad. So I'm hoping that that happens because we do have some work to do and I would like it to be work that, number one, has safe havens for people in Syria. Number two, begins a political dialogue, which was your question, how do you create some kind of outcome that will have a more stable future? Who do you get at the table? I worked on that when I was Secretary of State. I know Secretary Kerry continues that work. And the Russians and the Iranians are the two biggest supporters of the Assad regime. So they have to be part of any kind of ongoing political diplomatic effort. Libya is a little different. You know, Libya um, actually held elections. They elected moderates. They have tried to piece together a government against a lot of really serious uh, challenges internally coming from the outside with uh, terrorist groups and, uh, and other bad actors. They're working to try to unify the different factions inside Libya so that they can take united action against the terrorists and try to get the, the east and the west of the country working together. You know, they're a rich country. They have oil. They're not um, without resources, but they've got to get over their internal disputes. And the United States, Europe, and others are helping them to try to do that. And I think they need some time and support I know the United States has taken some actions against terrorists inside Libya, uh, particularly ISIS training camps, uh, and I support that because I want to give the people of Libya a chance to actually form a government and realize the promise of getting rid of Gaddafi, who had so oppressed the country for you know, more than 40 years, hollowed out all the institutions, threatened genocide against his own people, which is one of the reasons why the rest of the world intervened, and I'm hoping that we can give them the time and space to actually you know, make a difference uh, for their country in the future. How do you explain the time and space to people? Because when you look at Libya, uh, for example, you're right about ISIS being yeah. there. The U.S. Yeah. just had to bomb. Uh, the place, by most estimates, is in its nightmare phase 
right now. Is it an example for people to say, you see what happens when we get involved? You see what happens when you take somebody out? You don't know what's going to replace it. Maybe we shouldn't have done it that way. Do you believe there is a mistake involved in Libya right well, now? Well, let me make two points. One, let's remember what was going on at the time. Uh, this was at the height of the Arab Spring. The people in Libya were expressing themselves, were demanding their freedom, and uh, Gaddafi responded brutally and said that he would he would just cut them down like cockroaches and made it very clear that he would use his mercenaries because he didn't have a standing army. He had a lot of hired mercenaries from around uh, to do literally that. The Europeans who are across uh, the sea from Libya you know, came to us and said, this is on our doorstep, we need your help. Basically they said, we were with you in Afghanistan, we need you now to help us with Libya because we've got to prevent this uh, uh, terrible happening uh, that could result from Gaddafi. We had Arabs come to us and say the same thing. We formed the first coalition between NATO and Arab nations. Arab nations actually uh, ran a lot of the air campaign and other support systems. So I think you have to look at what was going on at the time and why it seemed, uh, and I agree with this, uh, to make sense for us to bring our special uh, assets uh, to the table to help uh, the people of Libya. Now, I go back to this point, they had an election, and it was a good election, it was a fair election, it met, it met international standards. That was an amazing accomplishment for a nation that had been so deprived for so long. You know, the United States was in Korea and still is for many years. Um, we are still in Germany. We are still in Japan. We have a presence in a lot of places in the world that started out as a result of conflict. And if you think about South Korea, there were coups, there were assassinations, there was a lot of problems for the Koreans to build their economy, to create their democracy. This doesn't happen overnight. And yes, it's been a couple of years. I think it's worth European support, Arab support, American support to try to help the Libyan people realize uh, the dream that they had when they went after Gaddafi. So a young lady standing here has a question from you. Her name is Kyla Gray. She's a student at Columbia College. She is leaning in your favor, but you have work to do with Kyla. She has not made up her mind completely yet. Kyla, what's your question for the secretary? Well, good evening. Um, recently, I started wearing my hair natural, and I... I'm sorry, you started what? Recently, I've started wearing my hair natural, uh -huh. um, and I've noticed a difference in the way some people address and look at me um, in the wake of things like Ferguson and Black Lives Matter and the recent backlash against Beyonce for her formation video. There have been a lot of racial tensions recently in our nation. Um, so my question to you is, what do you intend to do to help fix the broken racial relations in our nation? Well, Kyla, first of all, thank you for being so candid and brave to stand up and say this about yourself because I think it really helps to shine a spotlight on what are one of the many barriers that still stand in the way of people feeling like they can pursue their own dreams, they can be who they are, they can have the future that they want in our country. And I believe strongly we have to deal with systemic racism and systemic racism is uh, found in our criminal justice system, it's found in housing, in job opportunities, in education, and it's also cultural. And so there are uh, barriers that people are encountering that I think we need to be honest about. You know, I just came from Central Baptist Church with Mothers of the Movement. I think they might be here. 
Um, and yes, they are. You know, I'd want them to stand up if you don't mind. I mean, these are the bravest women. Um, you know, these, these, these five women have lost children to police actions and to random senseless gun violence. And there's no doubt that in each case, uh, as they said at the church earlier, uh, there is a racial component to it. Uh, a young black teenager, 17 years old, playing the, playing the music in his car too loud with a bunch of his friends, and a white guy comes up and tells him to turn the music down. They exchange words. The man pulls out his gun and kills him. So we have serious challenges, and I think it's important for people, and particularly for white people, to be honest about those and to recognize that our experiences may not equip us to understand what a lot of our African-American uh, fellow citizens go through every single day. Uh, so for me, when I talk about breaking down all the barriers that stand in the way of people's ambitions and dreams, uh, racism, along with economic issues, educational issues, and all the rest, have to be addressed. Otherwise, you know, we are never going to be the nation we should be. We're never going to overcome uh, our legacy. You know, dating back to slavery, segregation, Jim Crow, it is still, unfortunately, alive and well. And you've got places in this state where an African-American baby has a higher rate of dying than you have in a lot of other places. The infant mortality rate can be compared to some third world poor countries. You know, in this state, your governor and legislature wouldn't extend, extend Medicaid, and so people can't get the health care that they deserve to have. Uh, so I think there are a lot of barriers that we have to be honest about. And I think honesty and willingness to listen to each other, actually respect each other, would go a long way toward us rolling up our sleeves and dealing with a lot of these issues and giving you uh, the feeling that you have a right to wear your hair any way you want to. That's your right. Now, you, know, you look great. As somebody who, you know, has had a lot of different hairstyles, <laughs> I, I say that from some personal experience. <laughs> I'm just happy to keep my hair. Yeah. That's my whole. Uh, you know, Kyla mentioned Beyonce. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about Beyonce for a second, because why not? No, specifically, what happened at the Super Bowl halftime performance? It upset a lot of men and women in the law enforcement community. They felt that they were targeted, and they feel that this is one of many anti-police messages. And now there's this resulting call. Don't buy her CDs. Don't support her because she does not support the police. Do you understand where they're coming from? Do you agree? And how do you see? in terms of reconciling these points of view? You know, look, I think there are an enormous number of police officers in our country that perform honorably every single day. They put themselves in harm's way. They connect with the communities. They are sworn to protect. And we should show them all the respect that they have earned and deserve. But we have problems in our criminal justice system in a lot of places that we can't ignore. And you know, put aside um, any particular celebrity or any particular song or performance, the fact is that 
we have too many instances here in South Carolina. Uh, we had uh, Walter Scott, North Charleston. We, we, there was a young white teenager, uh, if I believe uh, right, Zachary Hammond, who uh, was unarmed and killed in a police action here in South Carolina. We have lost too many young people. So what's the answer? I don't think the answer is for us to find ourselves in opposing camps where we're just going to be looking at each other with you know, mistrust. We have to figure out how we're going to lift up the good practices, reform policing, provide more support, so that force is a last resort, not a first choice. And that means helping to train police so that you know, when they go out on the streets, I'm sure they're nervous and scared too. So how do we create a better understanding about how to deal with different situations that de-escalate instead of escalate? You know, one of the mothers here, you know, lost her son. Um, several police officers were asked to move him out of a public park. They said, no, he has a right to be in a public park. Uh, this happened in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Uh, Maria Hamilton's here. Her son was Dontre. And so, no, we, we, we're not going to move him out. But one police officer who knew somebody who was in, you know, the, the restaurant that wanted him moved showed up. And, you know, so he started beating this young man with a baton. And when the young man, you know, tried to protect himself and grab the baton, you know, the officer pulled out his gun and shot him. Now, and, you know, numerous times. So we've got to come to grips with the fact that we've got to do some retraining here. We've got to do some work to make sure that our police are understanding how best to deal with situations where somebody's not armed, somebody's sitting on a park bench, and he ends up dead. Mm. You know, so there is work to be done, and I, I don't, I, I think the right response is let's respect the police, let's be sure that we hold up those who are doing the right uh, things and protecting us, and let's try to help more police follow that example, and then let's hold police behavior accountable so that there's an incentive for people to change how they are doing police practices. And, and, you know, President Obama had a policing commission, and, you know, I embrace all of their recommendations. And as president, you know, I would try to work with the police and work with the community and work with victims of violence, getting everybody together, because what we want to do is stop this from happening again. We want to save lives. We want to prevent any other mother from going through what these mothers have gone through. And that would be my goal as president. Have another vote. Okay. Sally Horn, the left. She's a student, part-time law clerk, says she's undecided, has a question. Go ahead. Hi. Welcome to the Palmetto State. Thank you. I am from Rock Hill, South Carolina, and I had the privilege and delight of attending Agnes Scott College in Decatur, Georgia, a women's college. Um, we share that. And I was wondering if you could elaborate on how attending um, a women's college prepared you for the specific challenge of running for president, especially when it's often challenging when people don't recognize women's issues as significant or women themselves as significant. Well, that is a great question. Thank you. Thank you. And I've been to Agnes Scott. It's a wonderful campus. I think uh, you I must agree. have had a great time there, just as I did when I went to uh, Wellesley College, a women's college. Look, I think what I got out of going to a women's college um, was that women were in charge of everything. You know? <laughs> That's just a fact. And, you know, 
we we ran the student government, we ran the newspaper, we ran the yearbook, we ran all the activities. So it was a great leadership opportunity. And it, you know, I know that that you can find that in many different settings, but for me, it it really helped to uh, give me the confidence and the understanding of what leadership meant. Uh, it put me in some challenging uh, positions to negotiate issues that I learned a lot from. Uh, so I, I feel very grateful for that experience. And, you know, when I, when I got to the United States Senate, um, I was so grateful to the women who'd been there before. Uh, and we formed a bipartisan group. And we used to meet off the record, on our own, no press, nothing ever reported out of it, you know, to trade information and ideas about how you did the work of being a senator and how uh, we could support each other where appropriate. You know, funny little things uh, like what do you do with your handbag? I mean, you know, that's, that's an issue. You've got to figure it out. Um, but serious things about how we could support each other on women's issues, how we could make uh, some of the concerns we had about childcare, about equal pay, uh, real uh, to the uh, rest of our, our uh, colleagues who may not have thought about it as much as we had. So I think there's, there's real support to be found when you're lucky enough to work with other women. Uh, and I was certainly fortunate in both the Senate and the State Department uh, to have that experience. And I give a lot of credit to my education, uh, equipping me to be able to do uh, the work that I've done. Secretary, I have another question for you. Jamie Rakoski. She's a law student at the University of South Carolina. She's leaning towards Senator Sanders. Has a question. Hi, Secretary Clinton. Hi. Um, so my mom supports you, and I've been leaning towards Bernie for several reasons, including that he's not corporately funded. I feel like he really understands my generation's problem with student debt and you know how much pressure we're under with that. Uh, my question for you is, what do you think has been causing this common generational gap that I see so, so many places between your s supporters and Senator Sanders supporters? Well, I'm not sure, to be honest. I really don't know. Um, but I want you to know that whether you end up supporting me or not, I will support you. And I will support the young people of this country because that has been, um, that has been my life's work. And let me say a word about student debt because I honestly believe that my plan to make college affordable um, and to help you pay down your student debt uh, is a, a very effective way of doing what I know must be done, uh, particularly with student debt. You're in law school now? Yes. So did <laughs> you come expensive. out of college with debt? Um, luckily, I, was, I didn't have any debt from undergrad, but... But now you do. Yes. Very yeah, much so. <laughs> I, I borrowed money when I was in law school also. Yes. And I, I know uh, that it can be a burden. And so here's what I want to do. I want you to be able to refinance your debt at much lower interest rates. It makes no sense at all that you're paying. Are you, do you know what your interest rate is? Um, it's between 7 and 9%. I know I'm already $75,000 in debt, and I'm only halfway through. And, you know, I, I want everybody to understand this. She borrowed money for the principal uh, and to be able to pay her fees to go to law school. And I would bet that a good percentage of what you now owe is because of the interest a 7 to 9% interest rate when we haven't had interest rates that high in years. It makes absolutely no sense. So we need to refinance it. We need to strip as much of the interest payments out that we possibly can. We need to 
uh, give you a chance to move into a contingency repayment program. That's what I had when I went to law school. I paid back my uh, loan uh, at a percentage of my income because I went to work for the Children's Defense Fund right out of law school, and I didn't make much money at all. I can't even remember. I think $14,000 is what sticks in my head. But I paid it back as a percent of my income so I could go to work and do the work that I love doing. It brought me here to South Carolina to do a project uh, to get kids out of adult jails, and I really am grateful for that. So I want to move you into those programs, and then I want to have a date certain when your debt ends. I don't think you should be paying debt more than 20 years at all, and shorter if we can figure out how to do it. And I, I don't think the federal government should be making money off of lending you money to get your education. I think we've got to fix that as well. Uh, and I'm going to be introducing more national service jobs so that if you do national service, you can get basically your education free, uh, which I think we should do to more, have more young people involved in national service. And then on the affordability side, I do disagree with Senator Sanders uh, with his plan about you know, free college because I want to have debt-free tuition. But I don't believe that my family or Donald Trump's family or a lot of other families that can afford it should have the advantage of free college. I think they should be contributing uh, on behalf of their children. So I want, you know, I want this to be a program where we have uh, affordability and I have a particular uh, commitment to the historically black colleges and universities because both the public and the private HBCUs do so much good. So I hope you'll go to my website, HillaryClinton.com, and look at what I'm actually proposing because I, I think you might, might find it uh, interesting and then go talk to your mother. <laughs> All right. On your left, we have the Reverend Robert Cooper. He's the presiding elder of the Florence Dillon District uh, for the AME Church. Okay. He is still undecided and has a question for you. Reverend. Great. Hi, Reverend. Good evening, Madam Secretary. I'm Reverend Cooper, practicing mortician and a family member. My question to you is that my concern is about the illness of the family, the degeneration of the value of the family. When you look at the stage of American scene, all the actors and actresses are little children that used to sit around mom and dad table. All the shooting, the looting, and the killing, they once sat around mom and dad table. That was the first academy they ever attended. And it points to there's an illness in the family, and seem as though the young people have to take all the blame for it. When you think about the shooting that happened in Charleston just a few months ago, if that young man had had a chance to have breakfast with his mother or a tight-knit family, someone would have detected that he had a problem and it might not would have happened. If he would have become president, what would you do to help some wellness come back to American family? You know, Reverend, I think your question is an incredibly important one because strong families are at the core of a strong society, a strong America. And the family is uh, the first uh, introduction any child has to how to behave in society, what's expected, what the values should be. So we do have to do more to help lift up families and support families. And a lot of families are under tremendous economic stress right now. And a lot of families just are trying to keep body and soul together, trying to make enough money to keep food on the table and a roof over the head. And the working hours that are demanded by so many employers make it difficult for a lot of families, particularly headed by single mothers, to be able to spend the time that you would want and I would, of course, want 
to see families spend together. So I think it's both an economic issue as well as a sort of personal uh, issue. On the economic front, let's raise that minimum wage. Let's get more income into the pockets of those women who are minimum wage workers. Let's get equal pay so that people who are working hard are given the dignity, the respect, and the income they deserve. Let's get incomes rising again. Let's get more good jobs for more people. Something that would help the family feel that they weren't on such rocky terrain and not sure where the next step uh, would be. And also, let's do more to help support families as they uh, raise their children. And I think this is not something that can be done only by the government. I wrote a book called It Takes a Village to Raise a Child. I believe that. So I think faith institutions, community institutions, trying to get the extended family to be more supportive are all part of how we help uh, families do right by their own kids. And I think we can also do more with better early childhood education when families uh, are looking for it, they can't afford it, a universal pre-K program so that more kids get off to a good start in school. But time is the most precious commodity and we need to figure out how we get more income into families so that they can actually have more time with their kids. And I will do everything I can because I believe in this, that's how I was raised. You know, my husband and I, you know, certainly did everything we could to make sure that one or both of us was home with our daughter, uh, that we were there at night to have dinner, to, you know, read uh, to her before she went to sleep, and we believe in that. And we know it makes a difference for the children. So what we want to do is to help more families have the support they need, which too many of them don't have right now, to be able to do more to get their own kids uh, off to a good start. And I think that would be a, a great way to help families and to help our country get stronger in the future. Thank you, Secretary, Thank you. speaking of time, fortunately we have more time tonight, but we do have to take a quick break. Okay. So we're going to take a quick break right now and we come back. We do have more of your questions for former Secretary of State Clinton and her final thoughts when our CNN Democratic Town Hall continues here in Columbia, South Carolina. Hey, CNN podcast fans, this is David Axelrod inviting you to listen to my podcast, The Axe Files. I go beyond the sound bites in revealing conversations with the most interesting players in politics. Look for it at CNN.com slash podcast and on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. Here at the School of Law at the University of South Carolina, we have former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, and I have a question for you and a little bit of video to watch. Okay. You may not know, but the late night comedians love you. They love you. They love to do things about you. Stephen Colbert had fun with a, an interview you had recently with Scott Pelley. You remember it. I want to play you a piece of it. And something has emerged, something has just emerged, just last night, that is potentially damaging to Hillary Clinton's campaign, and it's Hillary Clinton. <laughs> it's true. Who has been dogged by questions of trustworthiness. And here she is yesterday with our good friend Scott Pelley. You know, in 76, Jimmy Carter famously said, I will not lie to you. Mm-hmm. 
Well, I have to tell you, I have tried in every way I know how, literally from my years as a young lawyer all the way through my time as Secretary of State to level with the American people. Some people are going to call that wiggle room that you just gave yourself. Well, no, always, I always tried to. No, I mean, always Jimmy tried Carter to. said, I will never lie to you. You know, you're asking me to say, have I ever? I don't believe I ever have. I, I don't believe I ever have. I don't believe I ever will. I'm going to do the best I can to level with the American people. How can you be this bad at it? Just say no. Just say no. You're running for president of the United States. Even, even Richard Nixon knew to say, I am not a crook. <laughs> he didn't say, it has always been my intention. As far as I believe, I will do the best I can not to be a crook. <laughs> will you lie is the home run of campaign questions. You just say no and then touch all the bases. Funny guy, serious topic. Is that a question that you'd like another shot at answering? I'll just say no. You make Mr. Colbert very happy. Good, good. I want to make him happy. If you do that. Uh, you know the universe of thought that this comes from. You've known it for a long time. You've dealt with it for a long time. And many of us have watched it. Uh, today... A federal judge, as you know, issued on a ruling on a motion that could pave the way for the possibility that you could be subpoenaed in order to obtain any information. Whatever the details of this latest case, it's what they call the drip, drip, drip theory of this. It doesn't go away. What is your statement to Democrats who are afraid that this right, wrong, good, bad, it will not leave you in this race and may compromise you now and going forward? That there just is no basis for that, Chris. And, and you know, look, I'm well aware of the drip, drip, drip. I've been uh, in the public arena for 25 years uh, and have been the subject of a lot of uh, ongoing uh, uh, attacks and, and uh, misinformation and all the rest of it. But I can only tell you what the facts are. And, you know, the facts are that every single time somebody has hurled these charges against me, which they have done, it's proved to be nothing. And this is no different than that. You know, when I testified for 11 hours on the Benghazi committee, you know, people were really, you know, oh my goodness, oh my goodness. I told the truth. I testified under oath. And at the end, they had to say, well, there was nothing there. Here, I have turned over 55,000 pages of emails. Nobody in any cabinet position has ever been as transparent or open. Um, I know there are, you know, challenges about what the State Department did or didn't do. That'll all be worked out. It is just not something that, uh, you know, is going to have any lasting uh, effect, and I am not at all worried about it. So then let's go to the audience. Yeah, let's We have it. Mary McClellan. She's a retired high school guidance counselor. She says she is undecided, has a question. Great, Ma'am. great. I'm coming to the red because, you know, I want to bring the red and the blue together here. <laughs> Thank you. I am currently receiving Social Security benefits, and that's after working for nearly 40 years as a high school guidance counselor. Currently, there are more than 63 million people receiving Social Security benefits, hardworking people who have been able to work and secure these funds. My question to you, Madam Secretary, is this. How do you plan 
to fund the Social Security Trust Fund to enable us to have a solid and secure Social Security system moving forward to keep me getting my benefits <laughs> and those in uh, the uh, next generation, those young people who are moving towards Social Security mm -hmm. age. Well, first of all, we're going to prevent the Republicans from privatizing it. That has to be the highest priority. And I, I listened to the uh, Republican candidates, the, the ones who are still uh, competing, and they all uh, are very critical of Social Security. I think Ted Cruz called it a Ponzi scheme. They've all said they should be changing it dramatically. I'm absolutely against that. I fought it when I was a senator. I will never let that happen as president. With respect to the Social Security Trust Fund, so that we can extend its life and make sure it is there for younger people coming up, we have to go where the money is. That means we have to look at different ways of trying to get more money into the trust fund. Raising the cap on the income uh, that is subject to the Social Security tax is one way of doing it. Another way of doing it is expanding the Social Security tax to investment income, so-called passive income, because a lot of well-off people don't make a lot of what we would think of as earned income, but they have a lot of income because it comes from capital gains and investment and other sources. So I think we have to look at you know, something like either one of those. There may be some other ideas, but I'm going to do everything I can to extend the life of the Social Security Trust Fund. And it is also important, though, to look at people who are not getting by on what they currently have under Social Security. There are a lot of low-wage workers who didn't make much, and it's really difficult for them. There are a lot of women who are not in the formal workforce. You've been a professional. You've worked for all those years. But a lot of women may have been in, may have been out, may have raised children, may have cared for an ill relative. They don't have a lot of uh, what they've earned in the Social Security Trust Fund. And then the other group I'm concerned about are widows who lose half their benefit uh, when their husband dies. So I, w I want to prevent it from being privatized. Uh, I want to extend the Social Security Trust Fund, and I want to figure out how we up the benefits for people who are literally just barely hanging on. And the three groups I mentioned are the ones that I'm looking at most closely. But we're going to make sure that we extend it and it will be there so that young people have the same kind of uh, guarantee that you did and I did uh, when we started out. Thank you very much. Madam Secretary, you have John Loveday on your right. He's the principal of a charter school, undecided. Mm -hmm. John? Hi, how are you? Hi, I'm doing well. How are you? Great. My charter school is unique because we are the only school in the state that, that uh, offers more instructional days than required by law. We offer 230 instructional days versus the tr uh, traditional 180. If you look at countries like India and China, they offer, they require their high school students to attend 220 days on average. And that's 40 days more than our high school students. Do you think that puts our students at a disadvantage? And uh, if so, would you work uh, with states to help uh, modernize that policy? Here's what I think it does, and thank you for being involved in education. It's so critically important. I think we need to focus on uh, disadvantaged kids, low-income kids, kids with learning difficulties, because they do need more time on task. Others could also benefit from it, but we understand, and you do, I'm sure, from the research, that the more time that kids who need that time have, 
the more likely they will make gains in their learning. In fact, there's a lot of research which shows that, you know, for most middle class or, you know, well-off kids, they get out of school in uh, the spring or early summer, having gone to 180, 85, whatever the days are in their state, and then they do things over the summer that keep them learning, where a lot of disadvantaged kids get out and they actually lose some of the learning that they've gained during the year. So I want very much to expand the school day and the school year and provide more structure, uh, starting with kids who would be most benefited from it. But I am in favor of states looking at how they might do that for every student. Uh, but I'm most concerned about the kids who are left out and left behind and need more time on task. The research on this is very clear. In fact, you know, I have said I want to be a good partner for educators and teachers, uh, but I want to help them do what they know they're supposed to do. We need better and fewer tests, not more tests. We need more support in the classroom because a lot of kids come with needs. And as the Reverend was saying, a lot of you know, kids who have challenges at home, you know, the school is the only place other than the family where they might get some additional assistance. So we need to look at this from a broader perspective. And you're right, more days, more hours actually does produce results, particularly for kids who need that kind of structure and support. Madam Secretary, we have Marjorie Wentworth on your left. She is the Poet Laureate of South Carolina. She's what? The Poet Laureate oh, of wow. South Carolina. Oh, wow. And Great. she says she's supporting you wow. on Saturday. That, so, that what really is your makes question? me very happy. Oh, well, great. Thank you. <laughs> I'm not going to recite a poem. No. Oh, I wish you would. <laughs> um, so the world was astonished at the generosity of the forgiving statements made by um, family members uh, whose family were killed in the uh, Charleston massacre at Emanuel Church. And just two days after, at the bond hearing. And, you know, it helped our city heal. You were there. You, you saw that. Um, led to a Nobel Peace Prize nomination, which is extraordinary. And, yes. <laughs> um, and, you know, one of the things I want to ask you is, why do you think that forgiveness is so rarely... Um, an action that we take, especially in terms of violent conflict, and you know, how could the you as president harness the power of forgiveness in terms of helping heal all the division in our own country and and beyond? That's a great question. You know, I I could not be standing here uh, if I had not been forgiven many times, and if I had not been able to forgive myself, uh, those who. Uh, I thought had in some way uh, disappointed or wronged me. So I, as a person of faith, believe profoundly in the power of forgiveness. And we need to do more to try to take uh, that value, that experience. The best example I know of it in modern times is the truth and reconciliation process in South Africa. You know, I was very fortunate to spend quite a bit of time with uh, Nelson Mandela, I know Bishop Tutu, I know others who were part of that process. It was just an astonishing uh, leap of faith to bring together those who had been oppressed by apartheid, often physically abused, imprisoned, members of families whose loved ones had been murdered, with their oppressors, their abusers, their murderers, in a process that truly was a national effort to try to 
forgive enough that the country could be held together, that the nation could be born, that the work could begin. And it, it was to me a, a stunning example of what is possible. I think there's a lot that we could do in this country if we could figure out how to harness those feelings. And I see so much anger and fear and bitterness. Some of it's being played out in our political system right now. The kind of language that's being used, violent images, threats against people. It is deeply troubling to me because we have to try to unite our country, not divide it, if we're going to deal with a lot of the challenges that we face. So I would, I would very much um, consider if there were a formal way, and if not, what we could do to talk more about forgiveness and reconciliation, to try to begin bringing people together from different backgrounds, obviously different races, different ethnicities, and every other of the wonderful mosaic that makes up our country, so that people could begin once again to kind of see themselves in the other's uh, life, maybe the old saying, walking you know, in someone else's shoes, because I think that's essential to sort of nurture the ground out of which forgiveness and reconciliation and unity could come. Mm. Uh, so I think it's one of our biggest challenges. Mount and I hope, that we, I hope we find ways to try to address it. And I will certainly give it as much thought as I can and try as president to think of ways to lead that. Thank you. Have a seat. I have a question for you on exactly that theme. Uh, the idea of being able to see yourself in somebody else who may appear as an opponent. Uh, you said recently when you were uh, reminiscing about the significance of Justice Scalia, you said, you know, it's so beautiful that uh, Nino Scalia had Ruth Bader Ginsburg, that even though they were so ideologically or philosophically or uh, looking at it from a legal perspective, different opponents, they were still very close friends. And it made me wonder, whom do you consider your Scalia, this person on the other side of the aisle that you have real disagreements with, but you consider a friend? You know, I, I thought a lot about that, uh, Chris, because of the Scalia example. And I just want to make three quick points before I uh, get to your question. One, Scalia and uh, Justice Scalia and Justice Ginsburg actually got to spend time with each other. They got to know each other as people. And it wasn't just showing up, doing the work, and leaving. What's happened in our Congress, and I'm sure Congressman Clyburn can remember the days when people actually got to spend time with each other. You got to know their families. You got to know a little bit about them so that they were not just some kind of political caricature. They were a real person. I don't know how we get back to doing that under the pressures that people, ideological, fundraising, political, partisan pressures people are under. But it's a great loss for our country. Uh, because when I got to, uh, when I got to Washington, uh, when my husband became president, I looked for opportunities to work across the aisle. And yes, was it hard? And was there a lot of incoming you know, battles back and forth? But to keep looking, I worked with Tom DeLay, one of the most partisan Republicans in the Congress, to reform the adoption and foster care system. We never became friends, but we did something good for a lot of young kids who have better lives because of it. I worked with Lindsey Graham to get uh, health care for the National Guard. And, you know, we traveled together. I traveled with John McCain, who I grew to very much like and respect and consider a friend. 
uh, the, the women Republican uh, senators are people you know, like Susan Collins from Maine that I have a lot of uh, regard for and have worked with and others. So it took, it took time, though, to get to know each other. And, and I, it was the same. They had the same feeling about me. I mean, I came into the Senate. I, I, you know, was a first lady and now I'm in the Senate. So I had to really work hard to develop those relationships. And that's what I want to do as president, because relationships underlie everything. If you don't have those relationships, it's really hard to get things done. It's hard to get them even with the relationships. But in the absence, it's practically impossible. And I want to do what I can to try to find that. Now, there will be people who are not interested at all. But I still think there is a critical mass of members of Congress who actually do want to get something done and who would be interested in, you know, kind of getting to know one another and getting to know me as president if they don't know me before as senator or secretary of state. So, you know, people like John McCain, Susan Collins are people that I, I felt, uh, you know, uh, I got to know well and worked well with. So it's more of the group. You don't have one no. special. No. Maybe to come. Give well, yourself, give I yourself hope so. a I would, I, would love to, I would love that to get things done. It would be great. So you've got a big date coming up here in South Carolina. Take 30 seconds, please. Sanders had the same amount of time. And uh, make a final pitch to the people here tonight. Well, first of all, I'm thrilled to be here campaigning uh, toward the primary on Saturday. As I said, the first time I came to South Carolina was as a young lawyer uh, with the Children's Defense Fund. I've been back many times since. Uh, I am going to work very hard to break down all the barriers that stand in the way of South Carolinians and Americans uh, achieving their dreams. Those include economic barriers. We have work to do to create more jobs, to get incomes rising again. I want to go after manufacturing and infrastructure and clean energy and, yes, raise the minimum wage and get equal pay for women's work. I want to make sure we defend the Affordable Care Act, one of President Obama's great accomplishments and a historic <laughs> achievement for our country and make sure that we extend it. And I'm going to figure out some way that we extend Medicaid in states like South Carolina to take care of the people who deserve to have health care. And yes, I'm going to work on education. I want to start with early childhood education. I want to support families. They are their child's first schools. Parents are their child's first teachers. So we have work to do. But mostly I want you to know that it would be an incredible privilege and honor uh, to have the opportunity to represent this country at such a consequential time. The next president will face challenges here at home and challenges around the world. You will be voting on Saturday for a president and a commander in chief. I feel that I am ready, I am willing, and I will serve you with the utmost of my ability and commitment to making this country all it should be for everyone who's in it. Thank you very much. Secretary Clinton, thank you very much. Thank you so much, Chris. We thank all of you. We thank the candidates. Special thanks to the voters for asking such great questions. Thanks as well to the viewers at home and everybody here in Columbia for their amazing hospitality. Remember, Thursday night at 8.30, a CNN Republican debate from Houston. Be sure to join us for that. Uh, tonight is a huge night in politics, and it's not over. Our coverage continues in Washington with the latest on the Nevada caucuses. Anderson Cooper, Jake Tapper, and Dana Bash pick it up after a quick break. Thanks again. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.